Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. June 17th, 1972. 33-year-old FBI agent Angelo Lano was getting his boys ready for their morning baseball practice when his phone rang. It was fellow agent Ernie Belter. Their boss wanted Lano to head over to the D.C. Metro Police Department. Five men had been caught red-handed, burglarizing an office at 2.30 that morning. They refused to talk to the arresting officers. While Lano was technically on call that weekend, he usually worked counterintelligence. A burglary didn't really fall into his purview. He told Belter to call in the criminal agent on duty instead. He had plans with his kids. Lano hung up and turned his attention back to his family. But hardly a minute passed before the phone rang again. This time, it was his boss, special agent in charge, Robert Kunkel. And Kunkel insisted Lano go down to the police station. As Lano pulled out of his driveway... He had no way of knowing what was ahead of him. This was no ordinary burglary. No, he was about to uncover the biggest American political scandal of the 20th century. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. You can find episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Not Guilty for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This week, we're examining one of the defining moments in American history, the 1972 break-in at the Watergate office complex in Washington, D.C. First, we'll examine the FBI investigation and the White House's attempts to hinder it. Next week, we'll see what happens when the investigation reaches the jurisdiction of the U.S. Senate. 
we'll see for ourselves how the evidence lines up with the outcome. When 33-year-old FBI agent Angelo Lano arrived at the Washington, D.C. Police Department with fellow agent Peter Paul, he was surprised to find the assistant U.S. attorney waiting for them. They were responding to a run-of-the-mill burglary call. Federal attorneys usually didn't show up for something so routine. The Metro Police quickly briefed agents Lano and Paul on what they knew so far. A little before one that morning, a security guard was making his rounds at the Watergate office complex. As he checked the door leading from the building's stairwell to the basement garage, he paused. The door wouldn't lock. Someone had taped the door's latch, preventing the door from bolting shut. Thinking a careless maintenance man had placed it there and forgotten about it, the guard removed the tape and shut the door. Then he continued making his patrol of the office building. But when he came back downstairs an hour later, he realized the door was once again taped open. This time, the guard called the police. Three plainclothes officers from the D.C. Metro Police responded to the call. As Sergeant Paul Leeper and officers John Barrett and Carl Schaffler made their way up the stairs, they noticed another stairwell door was taped. This time, it led to the sixth floor. This floor was headquarters to the Democratic National Committee, or the DNC. It was usually a bustling place, with everyone preparing for the upcoming presidential election. But at 2.30 in the morning, the building was silent. The three officers made their way down the sixth floor hallway, guns drawn. They turned on the lights as they cleared each room, noticing some of the offices were in disarray. Papers were scattered across desks, filing cabinets left open. Sergeant Leeper and Officer Schaffler stepped out to search the terrace, leaving Officer Barrett alone in the dim hallway. But before he could follow them outside, he heard a sound in the conference room. Barrett rushed the room and yelled, Put your hands in the air. Five pairs of gloved hands rose. Barrett called for his fellow officers, and the three men arrested the burglars. For the first time in their careers, they apprehended thieves who wore business suits. The five intruders gave their names, but they were clearly aliases. Two men gave the same name. One of them had gotten confused about his cover story. The officers cuffed the burglars and brought them back to the station. Because the sixth floor was rented by the DNC, Metro Police called in the FBI. At the police station, Agent Angelo Lano tried to figure out how to identify the burglars, who still refused to talk. He decided to send the men's fingerprint cards to the FBI headquarters for analysis. Meanwhile, Assistant U.S. Attorney Charles Work showed the agents the items found with the intruders. First, the men had a significant amount of cash on them, almost $2,300 in $100 bills, the equivalent of over $14,000 today. But even stranger was the fact that most of the money was brand new and sequential. Lano sent the serial numbers to the Secret Service to investigate where the funds originated. 
The robbers also carried one walkie-talkie, two expensive 35-millimeter cameras, several rolls of film, and a gym bag. Lano opened the gym bag and pulled out a wad of tissue paper. Out fell a small black device connected to a series of wires. As he withdrew another pile of paper, he found a second, identical gadget. Lano couldn't be sure until he got them to the experts, but they looked like bugging devices. The burglars also had what looked like a smoke detector. The police, fearing it was an explosive, called in the bomb squad. But the fake alarm was yet another listening device. Unlike most burglars who break in to steal things, it seemed these men were trying to leave stuff behind, covert surveillance equipment. This case had just evolved from ordinary burglary to suspected espionage, landing it solidly in the FBI and Agent Lano's jurisdiction. The men also carried two key cards to rooms 214 and 314 at the Watergate Hotel. It was attached to the Watergate office complex. After securing a warrant, agents Lano and Paul took four officers over to the hotel. Then they split into two groups to search each room. Inside, they discovered more $100 bills, burglary tools, and additional electronic bugs. As an officer dug through a dresser drawer, he found a stamped envelope addressed to the Lakewood Country Club. When he opened it, he found a check for $6.36, along with a bill for the club's dues. Both the bill and the check had the same name on them, Howard Hunt. They also found Hunt's name in two address books they came across in the room. One had an entry for Howard Hunt, and the other had a listing for an HH. The agents suspected that Howard Hunt was the real identity of one of the burglars, but their lead immediately fizzled out when the fingerprint IDs came back. None of them were named Hunt. Three of the burglars were 46-year-old Virgilio Gonzalez, 49-year-old Eugenio R. Martinez, and 55-year-old Bernard Barker. All were Cuban-born, anti-Castro activists with ties to the CIA. The fourth burglar was 47-year-old Frank Sturgis. Born in Norfolk, Virginia, Sturgis moved to Cuba in 1956 when he was 32. While the CIA denied they ever employed him, records proved that Sturgis participated in several intelligence operations, including the Bay of Pigs invasion. The final man was 48-year-old James W. McCord. He was in the CIA for nearly 20 years before starting a private security firm two years earlier. The fact that all five men had previous ties to the CIA certainly got Lano's attention. Had the FBI unintentionally stumbled into a covert CIA operation? But there was a second possibility. The FBI agents had done some digging on James McCord. For the last six months, he'd acted as the director of security for the campaign to re-elect the president, also known as CRP, an organization that was often derisively called CREEP. This committee had a single goal, 
secure an election night win for then-president and Republican incumbent Richard Nixon. Could this break-in at the DNC be CRP's attempt at political espionage? With more questions than answers, Agent Lano began making calls. One of his first was to the phone company. He asked them to run the number he found in the address book next to the name Howard Hunt. That line connected to an office at the White House. Lano paused, his ear still to the receiver. There was no denying it now. Somehow, the administration was involved. Lano immediately called the White House offices and spoke to an aide. He asked to speak to Howard Hunt, but the aide said he wasn't in. Lano then asked what exactly Hunt's job was at the White House. The aide hesitated before giving a vague reply. Hunt worked on confidential matters. Lano hung up. He may not have had much more intel on Hunt, but he was able to confirm one vital piece of information. Howard Hunt worked at the White House. The next day, on June 18, 1972, Agent Lano received a public statement from the Committee to Re-elect the President. John Mitchell, the head of CRP, admitted that James McCord, the fifth man in the Watergate burglary, worked for the committee in the past as a consultant. But Mitchell denied that the CRP had any knowledge of McCord's activities at the DNC headquarters. But Lano wasn't readily convinced by Mitchell's denials. Signs pointed to something much more sophisticated. Their equipment was all high-end technology, outside the reach of the average person. The robbers were well-prepared, carrying large sums of money and dressed in suits. No, these were no ordinary thieves ready to smash and grab what they could. Since all of the burglars had ties to the CIA, Lano still couldn't help but think that the case would link back to the agency somehow. But Lano's boss, Bob Kunkel, disagreed. He knew there was an informal security unit based at the White House. The unit was known as the Plumbers. Their job was to fix any leaks that made Richard Nixon look bad going into the 1972 election. With James McCord's connection to the administration, Kunkel believed the investigation would lead to the front steps of the White House. The only question was, how high up the chain did it go? Coming up, a new witness comes forward and steers the FBI investigation in the right direction. Now, back to the story. On June 17, 1972, five men were caught red-handed stealing documents from the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington, D.C. Soon after, 33-year-old FBI agent Angelo Lano and his team connected the break-in to both the CIA and the committee to re-elect President Nixon. Then, two days later, the agents got another massive break. On Monday, June 19, 1972, a hotel manager at the Howard Johnson's across from the Watergate building called the FBI. 
he saw James McCord's photograph in the newspaper and recognized him as a man who booked two rooms in the hotel back in May. Agents immediately headed over to the hotel to take the manager's statement. They also inspected the room McCord had stayed in, but it was clean. So Lano pulled the phone records from the room. What he found was a complete windfall. There were several long-distance calls to homes in Connecticut. By tracing those numbers, agents linked them back to one of their own, Alfred Baldwin. He was a former FBI agent and currently on the security team for the CRP. When contacted, 36-year-old Baldwin told the FBI he needed to speak with a lawyer first. This looked like just another suspect avoiding questioning until Baldwin got back in touch. He wasn't going down with the ship. He was ready to talk. On June 25th, the former FBI agent found himself on the other side of the interrogation table from Agent Angelo Lano. Lano asked Baldwin what he was doing in the Howard Johnson Hotel. He expected Baldwin to dodge the question, but he didn't. Baldwin, much to Lano's surprise, was willing to spill everything he knew. He told Lano that the June break-in at the Watergate wasn't the first. He was also there in May to act as a lookout while bugs were planted in the Democratic National Headquarters. Baldwin lived at the hotel for the next few weeks to monitor the wires. His orders were to transcribe anything that came through, but the mission was a failure. One of the bugs didn't work correctly, and the other only picked up mundane things like chit-chat and the scheduling of hair appointments. What Baldwin and the men were looking for was financial information. They wanted to know where the Democratic National Committee obtained funding. If there were any special interest groups or foreign countries financing the DNC's campaign efforts, it would be a major scandal. And a leak to the press could secure the election for Republican incumbent Richard Nixon. Baldwin told Lano that the second break-in on June 17th was orchestrated to fix the original transmission device, plant new ones, and take photographs of financial documents. And the man who supervised the job was named Howard Hunt. On the night of the break-in, Baldwin saw three men pull up to the Watergate complex. He didn't think much of it until the sixth-floor lights flickered on. The men, dressed in street clothes, walked down the hallway, and two of them went out on the terrace. Using his walkie-talkie, Baldwin called Hunt. He asked if their people were dressed casually or in suits. Hunt replied, suits. Baldwin radioed back, then we've got a problem. The three men were, of course, the plainclothes Metro police officers. Before Baldwin knew what was happening, Hunt ran into the hotel room where he kept watch. He told Baldwin to wipe the place down to get rid of fingerprints and to take all the electronics to James McCord's house. He advised Baldwin to get out of town. Agent Lano considered Baldwin's story for a moment. He was confident Baldwin was telling the truth, but he was also pretty sure that Howard Hunt couldn't be the real mastermind behind the break-in. 
Solano kept pushing. He asked Baldwin if he knew anyone else orchestrating behind the scenes. Baldwin knew that another man worked with Howard Hunt, George something. He only met him once. Lano pulled out a picture and slid it across the table. Was the man in the photo George? Baldwin knew immediately, yes. It was George Gordon Liddy, an employee of the committee to re-elect the president. Special agent in charge, Kunkel, was right. The investigation didn't point at the CIA. It led to the committee to re-elect the president. This immediately caused a roadblock. FBI policy dictated that agents needed permission to interview anyone connected to the White House. Unfortunately, this approval could take days and would slow the investigation to a crawl. Not only that, the White House would insist that one of the administration's lawyers sit in on all interviews with staff. Agent Lano knew people wouldn't speak as freely with their employer's attorney in the room. But this didn't keep Agent Lano and his colleagues from making progress on the investigation. On Thursday, June 22nd, the money trail heated up. The Secret Service had finally traced the brand new $100 bills found with the burglars. The cash went into circulation at a bank in Miami, the same bank where Cuban-born burglar Bernard Barker was a client. When the agents pulled Barker's records, they found that checks from the CRP had been deposited into his account. Days after the deposits, Barker withdrew thousands of dollars. This was a jackpot for the FBI. Agent Angelo Lano stayed in the office late that night to type up his daily report. He outlined the excellent work the team had done following the money trail and wrote that they were going to continue down this path. And they wouldn't stop until they uncovered who in the White House had funded the Watergate break-in. They were getting closer. Lano sent the report to FBI Deputy Director Mark Felt and Acting Director Patrick Gray. Unbeknownst to Lano, Gray then sent the report to the White House. Every step of the operation was being monitored by the very people the FBI was investigating. And they were growing anxious. Lano's report was correct. The FBI was getting uncomfortably close to the truth. Something had to be done, and quickly. Nixon's top aide, John Ehrlichman, and his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, knew who to call. They summoned CIA Director Richard Helms and Deputy Director Vernon Walters to the White House for a meeting. Ehrlichman and Haldeman explained to the CIA directors that because the men arrested at Watergate had links to the CIA, Further inquiries into the case would divulge matters of national security. They stressed that the FBI had more than enough evidence against the five burglars and the two masterminds, Howard Hunt and George Gordon Liddy. The investigation needed to stop with those seven men or risk broaching a security issue. Haldeman ordered the CIA directors to tell the FBI to back off. But Director Helms, known for his uncanny ability to conceal emotion,
flew into a rage. The White House would not manipulate him. The Watergate break-in had nothing to do with the CIA, and he knew it. He refused to undermine the agency's reputation by lying to the FBI. And though Helms didn't say it to Haldeman and Ehrlichman, he had already spoken to FBI Director Patrick Gray the morning of the burglary. Helms not only told Gray that the CIA wasn't involved, he urged him to look at the link between James McCord, Howard Hunt, and the advisors to the president. He'd already gone around the White House entirely. With Helms refusing to play ball, CIA Deputy Director Walters decided to bite the bullet. He agreed to step in and call FBI Director Gray. Agent Angelo Lano and his colleagues' leashes were suddenly pulled by the FBI director. It seemed every move they made was met with a directive to stop or to wait. Lano grew frustrated, and he wasn't the only one. Earl Silbert, the federal prosecutor assigned to oversee the grand jury, went to Lano to ask what was holding up the case. Why wasn't the investigation moving forward? But Lano could only say what Patrick Gray told him. The CIA claimed national security was at risk. Silbert joined Lano and other agents in pushing back against the restrictions. And eventually, Patrick Gray relented. The investigation was going forward, whether the CIA liked it or not. When Gray called Deputy Director Walters to let him know, Walters admitted he didn't see any connection between Watergate and the CIA, and because of this, he wouldn't stand in the FBI's way any longer. The investigation was back on track. Coming up, the FBI probe heats up. Now back to the story. After a break in the 1972 Watergate case led to the front steps of the White House, the Nixon administration stepped in to stop the probe from going any further. The administration claimed further inquiries would risk national security, and the CIA moved to block the FBI's investigation. But Agent Angelo Lano and his team refused to back down. The investigation continued full steam ahead. 33-year-old FBI agent Paul P. Magallanes conducted formal interviews of White House staff. But when he sat down to question James McCord's secretary at CRP, a White House lawyer joined them for the interrogation, a required mandate by the administration. As expected, the secretary had next to nothing to say to Agent Magallanes with the attorney sitting next to her. After all, she hoped to keep her job. So Magallanes handed her his card. He asked her to call him if she thought of anything that might help the investigation. This move paid off. The secretary called him the next day. She wanted to talk, but they had to be careful. The CRP couldn't know that she was cooperating with the investigation. She told Agent Magallanes not to come back to the White House or even meet her in public. Instead, she asked him to pick her up that weekend in a nondescript vehicle. 
Once they were far enough from probing eyes, she'd answer any of his questions. So on a hot Saturday morning in June of 1972, Magallanes took his personal car to pick up the secretary. As they drove around downtown D.C., she talked. The secretary told him that after the burglary, her boss, James McCord, and George Gordon Liddy came to the CRP offices at the White House. Then the two men began shredding documents, financial records. As they finished up their conversation, the secretary gave Magallanes the name of someone who would know more details, 35-year-old Judy Hoback. She was a bookkeeper at the CRP. The secretary wouldn't give Magallanes Hoback's number, but promised to have her call. It took until Thursday for Hoback to follow through. She still worked for CRP and certainly couldn't ring the FBI from the White House offices. But more than that, she really needed this job. A few years earlier, her husband died suddenly, and she was left with a young daughter to support. But her conscience, she told Magallanes, wouldn't allow her to ignore what was happening. As a bookkeeper, she had a front row seat to the dealings of the CRP. A few nights later, FBI agents met Hoback for dinner and then followed her back to her small suburban home. Sitting in her living room, she explained to them that there was a secret slush fund at the CRP. This money moved in ways that didn't make sense. The deputy director of Richard Nixon's campaign, Jeb Magruder, inexplicably took funds from this account. George Gordon Liddy also received payments. But unfortunately, the evidence the FBI needed to back up her story was gone. The financial ledgers had been shredded along with other documents. But proof of Hoback's account came in late July. Hugh Sloan, the CRP's treasurer, suddenly resigned. He saw a cover-up forming and couldn't support it. He went to federal prosecutor Earl Silbert with what he knew. Sloan said that Nixon's campaign manager, John Mitchell, had approved a $200,000 payment to Liddy, which Sloan believed funded the Watergate break-in. He felt like his hunch was confirmed by Jeb Magruder, second in command at the CRP, when he told Sloan to lie to prosecutors about how much money went to Liddy. Both Hoback and Sloan were willing to testify in front of the grand jury, but their accounts were undermined by Jeb Magruder and his assistant. Both claimed that the slush fund was for security for the Republican National Convention. With no proof to the contrary, the grand jury believed Magruder, and so on September 15, 1975, only seven people were indicted in the burglary, the five men caught in the act on the sixth floor, Howard Hunt and George Gordon Liddy. With the indictments handed down, Watergate began to fade from the public's mind. It seemed the investigative chapter of the affair had come to a close. But FBI agents like Angelo Lano weren't satisfied. If the conspiracy went no higher than Liddy and Hunt, 
Why was a White House lawyer almost always present at interviews? Why had there been so much interference in their investigation? Two reporters with The Washington Post, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, asked the same questions. Their colleagues at other national papers had moved on with the rest of the public. But Woodward and Bernstein vowed to keep reporting. They knew there was more to uncover. Woodward and Bernstein used several informants, including bookkeeper Judy Hoback. But none became as famous as their very secretive source, a person famously codenamed Deep Throat. Deep Throat would only speak to Woodward on deep background, meaning Woodward couldn't use the information directly in his articles, but only as a guide to direct his reporting. The mysterious informant met with Woodward in parking garages, confirming information the journalists learned from others and steering the reporter in the right direction. But it was evident to the FBI that Woodward received his information from inside the investigation. Exclusive details showed up in the paper, sometimes just days after Agent Angelo Lano's daily updates. Acting FBI Director Patrick Gray was apoplectic. The leak must be plugged. He put his right-hand man, Mark Felt, in charge of rooting out the source. Felt was unsuccessful in plugging the leaks, and the Washington Post continued to report on Watergate throughout the fall of 1972. They openly alleged the break-in was on the orders of those close to the president. It would take over 30 years for the world to learn why Mark Felt couldn't stop investigative information from showing up in the Post. This was because Mark Felt was Deep Throat. Though the Washington Post continued their reporting, the general public only knew the basics about Watergate in the weeks leading up to the November 1972 presidential election. And this bothered federal prosecutor Earl Silbert. He believed Americans had a right to know the full truth before they voted. But they were running out of time. Election day was a month away, and the investigation had uncovered no new bombshells linking Watergate to the president or those running his campaign. The only way the truth could come out in time was if one of the burglars talked. Silbert knew the robbers wouldn't give anything up unless they were offered a deal. He didn't believe a prosecutor should ever allow an upcoming election to influence his decisions, but he also felt backed into a corner. And so he approached former CRP head of security, James McCord, with a deal. An exchange of information for a lessened sentence. Silbert told McCord that if he came forward with the whole story, they would let him plead to one count of conspiracy. This arrangement would bring his maximum sentence down to five years instead of the 25 to 35 he was facing. It was a sweetheart deal, but McCord turned it down. He would take his chances in court. Without the full story from McCord, American voters went to the polls on November 7, 1972, unaware that the Watergate cover-up went up to Nixon's highest advisors. 
Nixon and his vice president, Spiro Agnew, won re-election in a landslide, carrying 49 out of 50 states. Nixon's inauguration was set for January 20, 1973, 12 days after the trial for the Watergate burglars began. All seven men were tried together on charges of conspiracy, burglary, and electronic eavesdropping. Immediately after the federal prosecutor's opening statement on January 8, 1973, Howard Hunt decided to plead guilty. The next day, when Hunt entered his new plea, presiding judge John Sirica asked if anyone else was involved in the break-in. Hunt replied, to my personal knowledge, there was none. The next day, the attorney for four of the remaining defendants presented a letter to the court. Virgilio Gonzalez, Eugenio Martinez, Bernard Barker, and Frank Sturgis all wished to plead guilty as well. But Judge Sirica wasn't satisfied. He believed the conspiracy went higher up the chain. So he asked the defendants again, was anyone else involved? Still, his questions went nowhere. The men denied anyone participated other than the seven who had been arrested. They claimed their motives were to advance the cause of anti-communism in Cuba. When pressed further, they admitted they didn't know how the break-in would do that, but Howard Hunt had led them to believe it would. Sirica pushed the men on the source of the recovered cash. Bernard Barker insisted the bills were sent to him in the mail. But Sirica said flat out, I don't believe you. But whether the men were holding back information wasn't up to Sirica to decide. He only had to determine if there was a reason to believe their guilty pleas were valid. And of course, he had plenty. The trial continued with only two defendants, 48-year-old James McCord and 42-year-old George Gordon Liddy. Around 60 witnesses and 100 pieces of evidence were presented to the jury over 16 days. It took less than an hour and a half to convict both men on all charges. But the investigation into Watergate wasn't over. Agent Angelo Lano and his colleagues at the FBI still believed more people were involved. So did federal prosecutor Earl Silbert, who continued presenting evidence to the grand jury. And the bulldog reporting of Washington Post sleuths Woodward and Bernstein persisted. On February 5, 1973, the Senate joined their cause. Democratic Senator Ted Kennedy brought forward Senate Resolution 60, which established a committee to investigate all campaign issues related to the 1972 presidential election. The resolution gave the committee the authority to investigate the burglary at the Democratic National Committee's headquarters, any cover-up related to the break-in, and any other illegal or unethical behavior related to the election process. The Senate voted 77 to 0 in favor of forming the committee. The organization had one year to investigate and submit a final report, and hearings would begin in May. 
But the first bombshell was revealed before the Senate hearings even opened. In March of 1973, at the sentencing for the seven convicted burglars, Judge John Sirica read aloud a letter given to him by former CIA agent James McCord. McCord, having previously rejected a plea offer, was now ready to make a deal. He feared retaliation for what he was about to reveal, but in the interest of justice, he needed to say a few things. First, there was political pressure applied to the defendants to plead guilty and remain silent. Second, perjury was committed in the trial. Third, there were others involved in Watergate who were not identified. And finally, Watergate was not a CIA operation, though the Cuban members of the burglary team may have been misled into thinking it was. McCord then claimed he didn't trust the FBI, the grand jury, or any government agency. But he was willing to talk to Judge Sirica in private and tell what he knew. The first of the president's men had fallen. Within days, James McCord revealed two names of the men involved, Jeb Magruder and White House aide John Dean, two men close to President Nixon. As he said in his letter, the operation to bug the DNC headquarters was not a CIA job. It was the committee to re-elect the president's attempt to spy on the organization and uncover illegal or unethical behavior. The CRP intended to use the information to bring down the Democratic contender in the 1972 election. The two men named in the letter had very different reactions. Jeb Magruder, second in command at the CRP, immediately retained an attorney to pursue a plea deal. John Dean started cooperating with investigators. He refused to be used as a scapegoat by the White House. Dean told the federal prosecutors about a meeting between himself, Nixon advisor John Ehrlichman, and FBI director Patrick Gray. Gray was appointed acting director of the FBI after the sudden death of J. Edgar Hoover in May 1972, not quite seven weeks before the Watergate break-in. He was a surprise nomination. Though he worked with the Department of Justice for a few years, he had never worked in law enforcement. Nixon had overlooked several qualified agents to appoint Gray. The White House viewed Gray as a Nixon man, a steadfast supporter of the president. That's why Dean and Ehrlichman felt comfortable approaching him with an unusual request on June 21, 1972, just four days after the break-in. The men told Gray that they found some files in Howard Hunt's White House office. They assured Gray the packets had nothing to do with the incident at the Watergate. However, it was best if the documents never saw the light of day. Gray understood. As his agents were furiously following up on leads from Miami to Kansas City to Mexico City, Gray took the Hunt documents and hid them in a drawer in his home. Then, months later, he burned them. 
This meant that the cover-up not only went up to the White House, it engaged the help of the head of the FBI. Following these accusations, Gray resigned from his position on April 27, 1973. Three days later, President Richard Nixon took to the television to give his first official speech on the Watergate affair. He claimed that until March, he had no idea any of his aides were involved. He announced that Chief of Staff Bob Haldeman and John Ehrlichman had also resigned. Nixon assured the American people that he would see to it that the guilty were brought to justice and the White House would not engage in a whitewash of the incident. But the cover-up was unraveling faster than Nixon could control, and the investigation wouldn't stop until it showed up at his door. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back next Thursday with the Senate committee hearings and the history-making final chapter of the Watergate Affair. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Not Guilty, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Not Guilty on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. In the meantime, based on the evidence presented, decide for yourself, how high up did the conspiracy go? And will the Senate committee agree with you? Find out next week. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Charlie Worrell. I'm Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>